0: Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 13. Wait, I wrote a novel? Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Paneris. I am continuing my effort here to make this a bi-weekly podcast for the summer, and considering that, well, a little peek behind the curtain means I'll be an episode or two behind on things such as emails and feedback, uh, but I'd love for you guys to email in because I will read them on the air as soon as I'm able to. If you'd like to send feedback, you can do... So, by going to the blog popcultureaffidavit.com and leaving a comment, the Pop Culture Affidavit Facebook page, or by emailing me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And I do have an email this time around. It is from Chris Keith, and he writes Greetings, Tom. Just a brief email on your most recent episode. Uh, and this was the Columbia House episode, which is episode 11. I thoroughly enjoyed this most recent show. Columbia House was a necessary evil that everyone I, that I knew of took advantage of back in college. Those damn flyers were in every lecture hall. The University of Texas should be called Columbia House Presents UT. The selection, sometimes cool, sometimes not. I still remember finding my credit card, Kryptonite, on Columbia, or maybe may have been bmg but same difference. Box sets. The sad thing was, with the unbelievable discount... Any box set could have been a reasonable buy. The obviously obvious buys were music that I already enjoyed. Led Zeppelin, done. The Who, done. Johnny Cash, done. Bruce Springsteen, done. Wicked awesome version of War. Word on the Springsteen Chris. I have that box set, and it's awesome. In fact, I was actually listening to it not too long ago. So, there you go. Chris continues, Then came the periphery. Those bands slash musicians that you enjoy, but would never otherwise buy a boxed set talking about so, about the Beach Boys. Bob Dylan. Yes, he's a talented songwriter, but wow, what a lovely singing voice. Elvis, the 60s masters. What's that you say? How could Elvis be peripheral? Yeah, Clambake, Rockahoola. The 60s were not kind to of the king. I dropped a pretty penny on the, these sets. When you have a CD in, in a set that has the entire album of Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, after God Only Knows, Sleep John Bean, Wouldn't It Be Nice, you have well, you have Pet Sounds. And I bought it. Your selection were actually CDs that I either own or would consider buying. Well, maybe not Megadeth. However, I'll never criticize another person's musical taste. On my iPad, I currently have The Beatles, Pink Floyd, The Who, Metallica, Bruce Springsteen, and then you have Chicago, The Satara Years, and Barry Manilow. I like Mandy. I can't help it. Oh, God, Chicago. My friend Kathy is a huge Chicago fan, and I can't stand that group. Sorry, Chris. I mean, the only Chicago song I actually haven't had on my iPod is 25 or 64. <laughs> she used to torture me in high school with You're the Inspiration. It was just like a running joke at one point. Uh, back to Chris's email. Enjoying the show as always, and I'm really looking forward to upcoming shows, especially if they give me an excuse to watch singles or say anything again. Oh, you'll have an excuse after the summer. Trust me. <laughs> anyway thanks for the continued excellence chris keith thanks again for writing in chris so it's been a pretty uh busy month or two for me the end of the school year proved to be pretty hectic She wound up falling behind and taking flight but once the year ended i went on quite the tear i've actually recorded a number of episodes uh and it actually was this marathon of notes recording for the better part of two weeks also that i could have most of prodigal done and kind of ready to go for the better part of the summer. Plus, I was working on the Columbia House episode, the Say Anything episode, uh, both of which I hope you enjoyed. The Say Anything, to be honest, uh, doing the movie was a spur-of-the-moment thing. Uh, I tried to do a commentary. It didn't work out, so I just did the episode. And I'm doing another Camera Crowe movie. I'm going to do singles uh, within the next couple of episodes. Uh, I don't think I'll do a commentary. I think I'll do a similar style episode to Say Anything, because I-, I liked how I put together the... The movie, my five favorite parts, and the soundtrack as well. Uh, the soundtrack to singles is so important. In fact, it's probably even more. It's more known than the movie. It's probably even to some people it's more important than the movie. But I happen to like that movie. Anyway, that'll that'll probably be out in in a couple of weeks. Uh, another thing to stay tuned for is an entirely new podcast from Yours Truly. Uh, this is called In Country. It is going to be a 100-episode podcast that looks at Marvel Comics' 1980 series, The Nam, in its entirety. The NOM is a comic uh, ran for 84 issues. There were three stories also collected in a Punisher trade paperback uh, back in the mid-90s, so it ends up being about 87 stories. And I'll be doing an issue per episode with some special episodes that look at movies, literature, and other things about the Vietnam War during the episode, I'll also be taking, talking a little bit about the historical context behind that issue's story, as well as taking a look at the ads and letters, which will give us a look well at the evolution of Marvel Comics from the end, toward the, from the end of the Jim Shooter era in the 80s to about the mid-90s during the, the boom and bust of the, the comic speculation years. Because the book came out in about 86 and it was cancelled around, well, 93. I'm planning on having that out by the end of July. Uh, so by the time that this podcast is actually released, the first episode might be up. And you'll be able to get through that podcast uh, through com as well as iTunes. Uh, so if it's out, go check it out. Uh, the episodes are going to run about 30 minutes apiece, uh, not a huge listening time commitment. Uh, but and hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy it. Now, the topic today... You probably heard me open the show by saying, wait, I wrote a novel? And yes, I did, and there's a reason I'm talking about it today, which I'll get to in a very long-winded fashion, as is my nature for these sorts of things. First, um, I'm actually going to talk about how I come up with topics for the blog and the podcast. Uh, Most of the time, I come across something or I have a flash of memory about something completely random from like 10 or 20 years ago, and I think, hey, that'd be great for the blog. do a little bit of research and if there's enough information readily available to back up whatever memory I actually have, I put something together. But there's a lot of times when I'm really not sure what I want to write about. So I do one of two things. Either I watch an episode of Degrassi and I do a recap review post, or I consult a list of possible topics that I typed up a while back and I add to every once in a while. I don't think I ever intended to have a sort of inventory to pick from, but at one point, while I was thinking of what to write about one week, I just started doing a brain dump of possible topics that I decided, well, this would be good, and that would be good, and well, I have a pretty big list now. Somewhere on this list, I had written the word SAVO, which, as I've mentioned in several posts on the blog, and maybe even a couple of times in the podcast, is my hometown on Long Island. My parents I have lived there for nearly 40 years. I grew up there, I went to school there, and I've lived there until I was about 22. I graduated college, and then I moved down to Arlington, Virginia. Uh, Sable is also the name of a novel that I wrote and self published back in 2003. And about a year ago, a fellow, fellow uh, blogger a friend of mine uh, had gotten a copy of it, he read it, and enjoyed it. And I, well, <laughs> I hadn't forgotten about the book, but I think my reaction was like, ooh, yeah, that. <laughs> like, it had b- been done so long ago that I didn't really give it much thought beyond a glance at my own copy on a bookshelf in my house. A copy I signed for my wife, so I guess it's her copy. Anyway. I thought of doing a post back then, maybe an episode, as I was getting the Pop Culture Affidavit podcast off the ground, and it would make a decent first episode. Then, well, I thought about some more, and I decided the Baltimore Comic Con would be a great first episode topic, and by the time I got around to thinking about Sable, I thought about of how the summer of 2013 would be exactly 10 years since it was published, and I thought, well, let me wait until then. Plus, work was ramping up, and well... I wanted to make sure that I was able to devote the right amount of time and attention to the book and what went into it. Uh, Not to stroke my own ego, because I do enough of that, trust me. (laughs) Because as I was thinking about it when I was writing it, I realized that it's not just a 10-year-old book, but actually it's something that I started writing 20 years ago. Furthermore, there's much more to it than this one self-published novel, so I wanted to give the book its proper due. I guess I should place a warning here. Uh, The episode's going to be pretty long, and it's going to be me talking about me for a long time, and I totally understand if you're like, really? Uh, can't you just talk about Trivial Pursuit or something? And I so understand if you want to turn it off, but if you're still with me, <laughs> I'm going to take a pretty constantly comprehensive look at this novel, Sable, from the moment I thought of it when I was 16 until, well, today, and I'll be looking at it both fondly and critically, because in rereading, I'd have discovered it. well, there's some good stuff, and there's, well, I totally understand why I never found a literary agent for this thing, but I'll be starting with an origin story, talking about a little bit of the real life inspiration behind the the, the book's plot, its characters, what I remember about writing the novel, and then I'll actually get into summarizing the book, probably as in depth as I can do it. It's like kind of around like what I do with it uh, back from the second episode of the show. From there, I'll talk about the soundtrack I created for the novel because you know I'm that guy. And I'll talk about other stories in two other books, uh, both of which are still unpublished. So uh, it's going to be pretty long, um, and I'm going to take a break. And when I get back, I'm going to start the first part. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The NOM. Join me, Tom Panneris, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The NOM. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at InCountry.Podomatic. Com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. before I start, like I said, you'll be hearing me talk later about a soundtrack that I created for the book, because you know, I was like the mixtape guy when I was a teenager, so there you go. Anyway, when I wrote it, I was listening to certain music, and references to that music made their way into the book, and so I burned a CD, and subsequently wound up making an iTunes playlist years later uh, of the music. Uh, Any girl who I knew were in high school or college is probably if they're listening to this, are saying, yeah, I have one of your shitty mixtapes. Of course you created a soundtrack for your own freaking book. (laughs) In fact, I actually created, like, I remember taking a creating a 10 years since high school mix back in 2005 and i sent it to a couple of my friends with a note on it that said oh come on you knew this was coming so me mixtapes long history probably its own post or episode somewhere <laughs> anyway you just heard hey jealousy by the gin blossoms an underrated 90s band if there ever was one uh the song that opened the podcast was graduation by wasted time Uh, A band that consisted of three guys I went to high school with. One of them who was my best friend when I was like four years old. He's still a good friend of mine, Uh, having since reconnected on Facebook um, over the last few years. Uh, Their album from 96 called When It Was Fun uh, is is where this is uh, found. And I'm plugging it because I want to see if somebody buys it. (laughs) If any of them get a royalty check for like a dime or something. But yeah, as I said, I actually thought of this book when I was 16. I know this for two reasons. First, I've been writing short stories for quite a while by this point. Most of them were probably crap. Maybe one or two of my friends read them. But when I was thinking about where the ideas for this book came from, I remembered it was sort of always there. And uh, the other reason that I know that I started writing this when I was 16 is because I was doing some research for the Columbia House episode. And when I was doing the research, I dug through a box in my basement. It says, uh, Tom's High School and College stuff. Um, I actually have to access this box at least once a year because my cap and gown from college, uh, my college graduation is in there, and I have to wear the gown and the hood part for the high school graduation I attend to every, attend every year as a teacher. So, anyway, among the, the caps and gowns and awards or memor, memo memorabilia and all this different stuff are old journals that I used to keep because I kept a journal uh, in notebooks from about the time I was in the sixth or seventh grade. Up until um I graduated high school and then the the rest of my journal I, I typed on I would type on a computer and I have a save file somewhere. I stopped keeping it back in oh two thousand one. Two thousand two thousand one or so. Uh much of what's in those journals is incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> embarrassing. It's stuff like proclamations of love to girls that I had absolutely no shot at, fake angst over the fact that I was a complete nerd in junior high and high school. Uh, And I thought, maybe, around my 16th birthday, I might have written about how I got a CD player and listed what I got, because I did have a tendency to do that. Unfortunately, I didn't. But I did find an entry dated June twentieth, nineteen 1993 that said, well, I was pretty sure getting, that I was getting a CD player for my birthday, that I had no finals the next day, and that a previous story I had been working on, which I went back and looked at and was oh, really bad, it was stupid, uh, and that I was going to start over and this was going to be called Decival and it would feature people I knew but would be fiction. So I was on my way to basing characters on people I knew. Looking at the journal, I wrote a little bit of it, I decided to write it in notebooks or something because there were bits and pieces and things and then there was nothing. And so it starts there. And it kind of has this genesis in stuff I'd written earlier. Um, I remember watching a lot of Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High when I was in 6th, 7th, 8th, maybe even the 9th grade. Uh, It's because I didn't have cable. And because the summer after 7th grade, I got into a bad bike accident. I wound up with a scar on my face. And basically, for a couple of summers, I had to have surgery because the scar had keloided and it looked like a big zit. And well, long story short, there were periods of summers in those days where I spent mo- most of my time inside recovering because I couldn't do much. Uh, I couldn't really get out in the sun and get sunburned because it would f- screw up my skin. And uh, as a result, I watched a lot of TV. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of comics. And I wrote um, a lot. And I wrote a whole, like... It was kind of like a novel. It's called Neighborhood Spies, and I don't have a copy anymore because I threw it away years and years and years ago. I think the premise was a couple of guys who were brothers were spying on their neighbors, and they were hot for two sisters. It was like a voyeuristic Goonies or something. I remember I followed them from like elementary school to high school and wrote how I, at 14 or 15, well, I wrote it like how I thought teenagers would act. like Everything from close to parties to sex and and, and things like that. So if I remember correctly, it was just like someone who was insanely immature writing stuff that was way out of his league and not doing it particularly well. Um, But what I do remember is that I... I focused on four characters and their respective stories and how they interacted with one another, and that's how Savile, the novels pretty much structured, except the novel doesn't follow the characters from elementary to high school. It only takes place during the summer after their freshman year of college and centers around the aftermath of the sort of drama that happened the previous year. It's basically about being 19. And uh, like I said, I mentioned this Neighborhood Spies thing from, like, 8th grade or whatever the hell I wrote it was... Uh, Because it was in the back of my mind when I started writing this particular book. Um, The scenes I see in my old journal, which was not so much a journal, but like this 80-sheet steno book that I wrote entries in and put like a Harvard and Dartmouth sticker on the front of they're nothing that actually made it into the book. There's only a guy pantsing a mall security guard. There's a dorky guy trying to get with a good-looking popular girl. You know, shocking, I know suicide at the beginning Uh, in that scene actually the suicide would be around for quite a while and I come back to it when I'm talking about actually writing the book as opposed to this germ of an idea so I remember uh, bits and pieces of it existed in various notebooks throughout my junior year of high school I don't know what actually happened to those notebooks Uh, they might have been thrown away at various times Uh, I didn't have a computer until I went to college it was my high school graduation present so it's not like I have a floppy disk somewhere of stuff I wrote when I was 16 In fact, I used to actually write stories in an old Smith Corona typewriter, (laughs) but in the fall of my senior year, a few things happened that really gave birth to what would eventually become this book. Uh, First, I got a new next-door neighbor, and it was a girl, and she was my age, and she was a student at a private Catholic school, so she did not know who I was. She was cute, too. Uh, so I got this sort of Brian Krakow, Angela Chase type of crush on her, <laughs> and we, we, we were friends. Uh, nothing ever happened. Uh, second, I actually did go out with a girl, and it ended badly. Uh, we went out for all of two weeks. She dumped it by telling me that she just wanted to be friends, of course, because that's what happens. Uh, I wrote some horrible, horrible, horrible poetry about her. Uh, there was drama, seriously, like, ridiculously high school drama um, that stemmed from the fact that she was the first girl I actually dated. Uh, maybe the fourth girl I'd ever actually kissed. Uh, the other three had been during that previous summer. So I wasn't exactly like Mister Cool or Mister Relationship even up until my senior year. Um, I'm going to leave names out because I don't know if any of them are listening, and I don't want to embarrass anybody. But so I go through this breakup uh, with a girl who's my friend, and and it's 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 messy in the way that high school can be messy, if that makes sense. Maybe it'll make sense as I talk about some stuff some more. The third thing that happened was that I took creative writing. It was a senior year elective for me. Uh, I did it during the fall semester. My teacher was Mrs. Tabor. She had been my sophomore English teacher, and I'd always wanted to take this class since I had in my schedule. Uh, This time around, I I did. Now, I think Mrs. Tabor was a little too encouraging as far as the quality of my writing was concerned, because I look back at what I wrote for that class, and it's really not great. But... I did walk away with three things from that particular class. First was another girlfriend. That relationship would be a year and a half and let's say, just say, well, I'm friends with the girl I dated for two weeks. (laughs) This girl, the girl I went out with for a year and a half, I haven't spoken to since 1996. Um, It ended horribly. Uh, So, Getting stuff out of the class, um, aside from this girlfriend and more drama, uh, was—I learned to keep a creative writing journal. Uh, this was something we had to do in the class. You know, we kept journals and notebooks. We had assignments we had to do. They were graded and what have you. But since then, I've always had a spiral-bound notebook with the words "creative writing journal" on the cover and the dates and I, uh, the dates kind of like where I stop and start. And I use it for drafts and ideas and whatever you know, whatever. And there are usually about two, and there are nearly about two decades worth of those notebooks in my house, mostly in boxes in the basement. I I thought of getting rid of them a couple years ago, and a couple of friends were like, no, no, you write a lot, and it's cool to see how far you've come. So I held on to them. Instead, I shredded like a bunch of old bank statements and shit. The other thing, the third thing that came out of this, uh, was the start of this novel. First, I took that suicide scene. It was basically a guy trying to write a note on his computer, and then blowing his brains out. And I don't know. I wrote the scene for class. I think Mr. Tabor thought it was descriptive enough, but too dramatic, you know, like melodramatic. But it stayed there, just in a, a journal. And I, like I said, I was sticking around. stayed would stick around for a while. Uh, second, I wrote a story called "Scenes from a High School Prom." I swiped the title from a Billy Joel song, <laughs> uh, and this story literally came to me in a dream, which sounds stupid especially because I rarely remember my dreams. But I had this dream uh, that I had asked the girl next door who I had a crush on, of course, uh, to a dance, like a semi-formal or prom or something. And while we were dancing, my friends were taking bets about whether or not I'd actually go through and kiss her. I jotted down, after I woke up, uh, a few notes in in my creative writing journal. And when it came to write a short story for the class, I wrote this out. The guy was named Jim. The girl would be named Sydney. They had two friends, Danielle was one of them, and a guy named Pan-Pan, and that was me playing a joke of myself because Pan-Pan was my nickname in high school. I deliberately called the character Pan-Pan, I think I even said his real name was Tom, just to be cheeky really, I was just, you know, being silly, and Pan-Pan was the wise-ass sidekick while Jim was the sensitive guy that you root for. Danielle was Pan-Pan's girlfriend and Cindy was the girl next door. Literally, who Jim had a crush on, and Cindy was afraid to admit she liked. So, over the course of the night, Danielle goads her about it, and at the end of the night, they dance to unchained melody, and Jim takes a shot and kisses her. While well, this is going on, Pam Pam places a bet with a guy whose old name is McNamee, his last name. Over a possible kiss, by the time he kisses her, Pam Pam and Danielle are up against about twenty people, and wind up winning a serious amount of cash because they have faith in their friends. And ends with that. It went over very well, so well, in fact, it actually made the literary magazine. Granted, I was one of the editors of said literary magazine, but it made it there. Um, and that story is actually in the book, in some cases, word for word. I w- went looking for my copy of the literary magazine, and it's somewhere. I have no idea where, but it is somewhere. And I actually have, but I actually have the original file of of senior high school prom. I kept it off on a floppy disk for years, and when I got a new laptop a few years ago, I transferred all my files onto a thumb drive and then to the new computer. So. It's, it's sitting on my computer. Uh, I'm not going to read it to you or anything because it would make this even longer than it's going to be. But uh, I did skim through the story, and well, you can tell that it was written by someone in a creative writing class, <laughs> there is this sense that I had just learned about the whole show-don't-tell rule of creative writing uh, that I was trying to demonstrate that as much as possible. Uh, for instance, this gem. To say that it was an extraordinary night would be something of a half-truth. Truth. Moreover, some mindless drivel used by a 16-year-old girl in her diary. There was nothing special about the weather that night, as Jim and attendees stood at a patio, away from the crowd that assembled on the dance floor of the posh Garden City banquet hall which the seniors had chosen for their prom. The cool June night air blew through her brown locks in weed-wacker fashion, causing her to shiver slightly. Gray rain clouds were the moon's lens cap, darkening the sky further. I was 17 when I wrote this. I'll cut myself a little bit of slack there, but... What I will say, though, is not a surprise I actually wanted to publish this in a literary magazine. <laughs> I, I mean, I go on to major in creative writing in college. I double up in political science. I minor in English, so the BA on my degree actually does stand for bullshit artist. Uh, anyway, I go on to major in writing, and I remember at times falling victim to the idea that to be a quote-unquote writer, you had to write about things that were serious and angsty. You know, like your parents' divorce, you're overcoming a drug problem, your eating disorder. And it took me a while... To realize that I'm not angsty. My parents have been married for 42 years. I've lived in the same house since I was born. Or or, or they've lived in the same house uh, since 75. And and I grew up in the same house. I mean, I had a stable, stable childhood. I mean, sure, there were moments. But for the most part, I, I've had a little charmed life. I think my biggest problem growing up in Saville was that I was a dork. I mean, I didn't have an immune disorder. I didn't have an addiction. I mean, if there's a poster child for normal, it's me. Well, my sister, too. But really, I had a normal childhood. And in college, I didn't necessarily realize that was a good thing. I mean, I knew it was a good thing because I more or less was well-adjusted. But a well-adjusted person with a normal childhood does not good MFA material make. So I really struggled when I was writing fiction because I was trying to, uh, too hard to write things that were serious and monumental for the characters. Stories about guys who liked their next-door neighbors and took a chance at kissing them on prom night. Not exactly the type of the stuff that's going to make like The New Yorker. But as I was struggling with that in college, I was also writing a column in the college newspaper. It was basically an attempt at a humor column. Looking back, I think on some level I wanted to be Dave Barry. <laughs> and I eventually realized that my voice, as it is, it lends itself well to the ordinary, to be honest with you. So I look back now at this short story from when I was 17, and I see the beginnings of someone who can really appreci- appreciate the ordinary for what it is even though, like I said, it's overwritten. The dialogue has its moments. Uh, I could see that I had been really paying attention to either conversations my friends were having or the scripts to movies I've been watching. And there are little things in there that I like. For instance, I remember my girlfriend at the the time really liking this. Cindy, look me in the eyes and tell me something. Are you crazy? Danielle screamed. Her pleas reverberated through the bathroom, causing a small group of girls huddled in in its corner to drop their cigarettes. Keep it down. Cindy said through her clenched teeth. Danielle's mouth went up on its right side. And why did that smile on your face? For the last time I do not like him. We're just friends. She continued in a whisper. The smokers had placed their cigarettes up off the floor and relit them by chaining. Ugh, Danielle said, shivering as she glanced in their direction. I'm not saying you like him, she said, her high heeled shoes making a clackety noise as she walked to the bathroom mirror. I'm just saying that you should wait a- until after the prompt to dump him. Let him have a good night first. Well, okay. This girlfriend liked the whole girls in the corners with her cigarettes because she was all like, hey, that's me and my friends. Yeah, whatever. But there's this whole exchange in the middle of the story between these two sets of characters, and it cuts back and forth between the two conversations as if we're watching a movie, and these conversations are actually finishing each other's sentences. Again, I've been watching too many movies... (laughs) But I was giving a different type of pacing and a shot, and I was trying to let the dialogue tell the story more than my moon-as-a-lens-cap, cloud-lens-cap thing, weed-whacker hair descriptions, I I don't know. The rest of that story, scenes from a high school prom, is pretty straightforward. I can't remember if my friends liked it or not. I remember that one girl in my government class uh, read this sentence aloud in, in class. Danielle reached into the center of her chest. Pam pans eyes widened as she pulled out a $20 bill from between her two breasts. Put me in for 20 that he does. She told me to embarrass me for it because she was pointing out the fact that I was writing about a girl taking a 20 up out from between her boobs. I remember being really sheepish. Probably turned like beet red when she mentioned it. And I think she knew I was going to turn beat red. Because <laughs> I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't Mr. Ladies Man. I, I was, you know, um, pretty shy, but covered up my shyness with like the t- tendency not to be completely obnoxious, but like you know, to goof around. I don't know. It's it's like my attempt. You know, my attempt at anything remotely beyond the comics that I was carrying around was something to rip me about anyway. And and she was very nice. She was she was just giving me a hard time. She was being very nice. She wasn't being mean about it. And and, and uh, so um, it was. I was just kind of kind of funny to me that that she even acknowledged that that was the story. <laughs> But moving beyond scenes from high school prom, um, I began writing another story, which never saw print, and I'm l- looking back at it, I-, I found I have the file, like I said. I'm glad it didn't, but it also laid a bit of groundwork for the book as a whole. I, I totaled this epilogue to a senior year. It was basically about what happens after the lights went down, so to speak. Uh, I think on some level, I was always curious about what happened at the end of some of those movies that had happy endings. You know, like, did Blaine and Andy actually stay together at the end of Pretty in Pink? So I decided to start off the story with a suicide that I'd first written when I was 16, and then refined when I was 17 and create a writing class, and I made it the suicide of Panpan, that character that I deliberately named after myself. Looking back, I have no idea why I was obsessed with the idea of having a character kill himself. I mean, it's not like I was ever actually suicidal or anything. I don't know, maybe this is my attempt at writery seriousness. seriousness. Um, anyway, in the story... Pampan kills himself. Danielle gets the note addressed to her, blames herself for his death, because apparently he told her he loved her, and she rejected him. Sidney and Jim have already broken up. She's going with a guy named Chris, and it's basically, well, everything fell apart, and his death was the end of it all falling apart, and I was making the characters start to build it back up again. There's also this attempt to convey a theme of the end of the innocence. I think I was listening to Don Henley at the time, or something. Anyway, by the end of the story, it's really, really overwrought, it's overwritten, and I was going through it, and I was like, wow, this is melodramatic, I mean, even for me, but I did notice, having written and read the novel, (laughs) how much of this really bad story from when I was 18 was actually in the book, I mean, I won't get into details, but skimming through it, I was saying to myself, oh, I can see where this comes from, and I can see where that comes from, so it's interesting to see your own creative process at work, especially from the days when you were a teenager. (sighs) I'm going to take a break here. Uh, When I get back, I'm going to talk about writing the novel, uh, what I drew from in real life, and how it went from a nice little story and a pretty awful melodramatic story to, well, its final product. I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. Three hundred and twenty-five manga chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. TIME TO DIE! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. OH CRAP! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. For I will let you go to another dimension. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libsen.com. See ya. So, sometime around the summer between my junior and senior years of college, this would be 1998, I decided that I was going to start writing a novel. Moreover, I decided that I was going to take these characters and these two stories and turn them into a novel. This was and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because I spent much of my junior year fighting a serious case of writer's block when it came to actually writing fiction. Sure. Sure. I was writing this weekly column in my college paper. I had no writing pro- problem writing academic papers, but for the stuff I wrote for my advanced cr- fiction creative writing class. <clears throat> Man, it was it was pretty god-awful. I mean, I, th- I pulled like a B plus or an A minus in the class anyway, but I definitely wasn't winning any points for good writing. It was easy, however, to write this, because I was familiar with these characters. I thought about what happened to them beyond the two stories I'd written. So I thought, well, why don't I just give this a shot? It wasn't for class or anything, but, you know, it's... I, I liked writing um, I started with that scene that I mentioned before the one with the suicide and I figured I would make it about these characters dealing with Pan, Pan suicide I started to outline it and I remember having that be a hard thing to write about especially since I was starting with the main character's death and it was going to be writing a lot of flashbacks so then I moved this suicide to the middle of the book and I decided that I was going to have everything lead up to this and then have people deal with it but I couldn't come up with a real reason for this character to kill himself like I said, I was never suicidal, So, it, and I never really known anyone who had considered, contemplated, attempted, or committed suicide, or at least to my knowledge. Um, if I had friends who were truly depressed, I never really knew it, um, and, and I, I do know of at least one who unfortunately did. Um, but that aside, all the things I kept coming up with for with this novel back in 1998 were inaccurate, overdone, melodramatic, and and totally unrealistic. So I decided to kill him anyway, but in a different way. (laughs) I was going to have him be killed in a drunk driving accident. That was his fault because he was in terrible shape mentally, drinking to compensate for the fact that everyone else went away to college, and he didn't, and, well, I was writing the book, and I started changing things in the outline, and I realized that I didn't need to kill the character. And I was trying to kill the character because I wanted to kill like an idea or past incarnation of myself or, or I, I don't know. I just I just didn't have to kill him, and I just for some stupid reason kept thinking I should. And it took me a little while to realize that there didn't need to be this big dramatic death in the middle of the story. So what I did was I took it out and then centered the story around the fact that he was drinking and screwing up things in his life because everyone else had left him and he just had no direction. Then I went back and looked at the other characters and storylines I had come up with and decided that this book should be about not like them dealing with him, but about being 19. So I decided to structure it in a way that it takes place over the course of that summer. Of these characters being 19 or turning 19 and it would be divided into the sections of May June July and August the main idea was that basically that during the summer that these characters are 18 things had fallen apart for a couple of them and they had gone away to college with a lot of unfinished business a lot of baggage I put the happier end of high school times in flashbacks and said I'm going to make this novel about relationships but mostly about failed relationships and about friendships it came pretty quickly from there, especially since I did draw on a bit of personal experience, as well. At, fir- at least at first. I remember that when I was coming up with the characters and mapping out the plot, I was definitely thinking about my friends and what it was like to be 19 years old. I, Well, I'd been up through some stupid drama with one of my friends, that girl I dated for all of two weeks. And when we left town to go to college, neither of us was speaking to one another. That lasted until about, I think it was October, when we talked on the phone and hung out over Thanksgiving. And, well, it wound up being... Us asking ourselves why we were getting so mad at one another over stupid high school shit. But I was able to work that into a story idea just as I was able to work people I knew into characters. And it's not like the book is some sort of semi-autobiographical thing in the sense that this is exactly what happened and who it happened to. It's more like I used those experiences and people as templates, and I built on that. So by the time I actually put the final touches on the final copy of the manuscript, they felt like people in situations I created, even if the setting was pretty true to life. I wrote much of the first part of it before I went back for my senior year of college, and when I tinkered while I tinkered with it during my senior year, I put it to the side for the most part until about April or May, because well, school catches up with you when you're doing things like that, and uh, and but between April and, and graduation, I really didn't much have much to do, so I was, I was taking it out again, and then after graduation in May, I really didn't have much to do until my job started in October, aside from finding a new apartment. So I worked on it in my free time. I remember at one point I was uh, house-sitting with my girlfriend, and I spent a couple of days writing in the kitchen while she went to work, and uh, that was actually also the week uh, week I discovered Great Big C. So I was listening to a lot of Great Big C, And I wrote most of the first draft uh, during, or finished the first draft during the summer of 1999. I did some editing on it during the course of that fall and the following spring, uh, and I remember when editing it, I was doing my best to preserve the voice of someone who was 19 and writing a first novel, even though by then I was about 22, 23. It was, I guess, me trying to keep the innocence of my post-high school voice, in a way. I'll get to whether or not that worked when I talk about the actual book. So I shopped it around (laughs) to a few agents, uh, as anyone does, I guess. I got plenty of rejection, as anyone does. And then I decided, well, I'm going to self-publish. Now, self-publishing these days is a little bit easier than it was 10 years ago. Uh, you can dump a little bit of money into an ebook via Amazon. You set a price, you get whatever return you want I've seen people offer their stuff for free to be honest although most of the stuff for free on Amazon tends to be really bad erotic fiction romance books so you could take that as you will 10 years ago though it cost a few hundred dollars to self-publish and you had to go through a service that was more or less often referred to derisively as a vanity press which in my case was iUniverse a print-on-demand self-publishing service which I think it cost me about a few hundred dollars to do this. I remember that I sold enough to make that money back, uh, and from there, I maybe get about a buck fifty each year in royalties. It's not like this was a best seller or anything. And then again, there wasn't a whole lot of publicity for that, and I'll talk about that later. And I'm really not doing this episode to get like royalty money out of people. I was just wanted to, I was like, I was like, this would be a good epi- episode for the show because it's been ten years, like, you know, who's even thinking about it? Uh, but before I get to all that, before I get to you know what it was like to actually publish the book and 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 do the one book signing that I did and 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 what have you, um, I would like to go through the novel and uh, section by section, uh, and I'm gonna do that after uh, after this break. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you stretching at? <laughs> Humans make illogical decisions. Destruct sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found Mrs. Spock. I'm talking to Mrs. Spock. You understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire, Mr. Scott. Join Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, the Two True Freaks, every month for a new episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month you will get a classic episode of Star Trek The Original Series, a Star Trek comic, and who knows what else. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Libsyn spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. Dance in sky, let's dance for a while. Haven't can wait, we're only watching the skies, hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. Are you gonna drop the bomb or not? Let us die and let us live forever. So, like I said, I'm going to give a synopsis of the book. I'm going to talk about my own opinion of it, as I went ahead and reread it. At all of eighty hundred and eighty-nine pages or so, it, it winds up being a pretty quick read, but and that might be because I wrote it. <laughs> in the process of writing it, I had read it so many times that I more or less knew it by heart, even though I hadn't really picked it up in a couple of years. I will start, though, with the main characters. And there are four primary characters, as well as three secondary ones, making it a Magnificent Seven, of course. All right, it's not the Justice League, but it's a group of friends. Um, and by the way, it's set up, the 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 group is the book is told from the third-person point of view and from... Uh, each chapter is sympathetic toward the toward the point of view of one of the four main characters. Uh, the other three are just basically secondary supporting characters that serve one, one or more purposes. In some cases, there are different perspectives on the same event, which I think help drive home the point of that event's importance. In other cases, since each of these characters has his or her own story, it's a good way to show how, well, how separated they are, at least at the beginning of the book. So, Our four main characters are... First, we have Jim. Jim Manley. Uh, The last name, not some sort of ironic or non-ironic tag. It's actually an anagram of of, of the last name of an old friend of mine. Uh, Jim is the lead as far as any sense of a romantic plot is concerned. Uh, He is a nice guy who's a bit quiet. He's very smart. We'll start the book with him heading home from college, and we end with him leaving to go back to college at the end of the summer. And his problems with the girl who lives next door to him, Cindy pretty much the conflict throughout a lot of the book, or at least what complicated things the previous summer. Jim is supposed to be the guy that everybody just kind of likes. I try not to get into how popular these characters were when they were in high school, because I figured that by the time you're 19, clickiness kind of wears itself out, except for among the people who gave a shit about being in cliques when they were in high school. So... I mean, for clarification's sake, a lot of these guys are just kind of like dorky guys and everything, and Jim's the one guy who never seems to make enemies, though. You know, like, he's clearly one of the nerdier guys, but he's not, like, picked on or anything. He's just, and he has friends who actually are a little more popular, but, you know, he's not a big man on campus. He's just kind of (laughs) there. Pan Pan, a character uh, that has no last name. His first name is Jeff, um, and, and yes, I... I I, very sued myself into this, uh, in a way, um, because this was my nickname of high school, but I did it as a bit of a joke, because he's a punching bag through most of the book, so I think I was trying to be ironic, or a smartass, on some level, Uh, but yeah, he's Jim's smartass best friend, and... It's almost like he has a persona that he developed as a result of whatever reputation he got while he was in high school. And he feels the need to be a clown. I'm not going to say that I went completely into the cliche of deep down he's hiding his sadness. uh, Because it's not like he's got some deep dark secret or anything. But there's another side to him. It's one that does start to come out of a result of what basically ends up being listlessness after his high school career ends. Unlike his three friends, he does not go away to school, and he goes locally. He winds up flunking out of, well, what's SUNY Stony Brook? And he spends much of his time making up for lost time, uh, holding on to what he can, or in some way or another, and this is by going out and drinking with high school kids. But he's not, like... He's not Wooderson. (laughs) In fact, I mean, Woodwardson's kind of creepy anyway, but it's it's kind of a sad... It, it's it's sad. It, it's a self-destruction. It, it puts a strain on a, his his friendship with Jim and his friendship with another one of the main characters, Danielle, whom he pretty much does love, but uh, that love is completely unrequited. And I think that I... Meant for Jim and Pampan to be based kind of like... They're both based on me in some way. I don't know. I I remember putting various sides of my own personality in there one way or another when I was creating the characters. Not out of ego, but I was kind of taking that write-what-you-know approach at the time. And, um, you know, my being both a smart-ass and a nice guy, at least when I was in high school, um, it kind of worked for two characters. And uh, I, granted, um, when I try to be funny, I've been told I'm actually not funny. (laughs) I'm... It's just... I would never be a good stand-up comedian. I can't write jokes. Anyway, moving on. Cindy Stewart. uh, I can't remember where I came up with Cindy's last name. Uh, I think I came up with her first name because I had wanted to use the name Kathy. But I knew way too many girls named Kathy, Catherine, or Kate. So I went with Cynthia. Stewart, I think I just wanted something that sounded generic uh, and suburban. Uh, Cindy's literally... And figuratively, the girl next door. Uh, later on in writing short stories about some of these characters when they were in high school, I'd give her more of a backstory, especially her friendship with uh, the other main female character, Danielle. But here, she's just the girl next door. She and Jim, well, we know something happened between them and it ended badly. And when the book opens, she's still dating the guy she left Jim for, this weird, real Guido loser named Chris. So there's the conflict. Um, I'm pretty sure I based Cindy on... on a a few girls that I knew when I was younger and I, I did have a very cute next door neighbor girl and it was part of her character but I remember throwing bits and pieces of friends and what have you and the characters I've seen in television movies I mean there's a little bit of Angela Chase in Cindy as much as there is uh, you know kind of little elements of people I knew and then there's uh, Danielle Rossetti and you know what happens when you take in a survey class on English literature from the 18th century to the present and Victorian poetry at the same time? <laughs> you wind up naming a character after a pre raphaelite poet. <laughs> as well as a sister. Because <laughs> Danielle's got a sister named Kristen. <laughs> um, So, there you go. Uh, yeah, they're Italians. Although I purposely, like, I made her be like a total mutt cuz there are there are people i knew from high school who are like all irish or all italian or they're jewish or what have you but i'm like a total mutt and so it explains the fact that she's got an italian last name yet um is blonde tall and has big boobs <laughs> uh, which it's 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 statuesque I think it was the descriptor I was going for. Um, She's the girl who's the early bloomer. She had to deal with being the tall, curvy girl in a world of stick figures. And although, for the most part, she seems to be one of the more confident characters. uh, She takes her friend's stupid, immature jokes about her figure in stride, because the guys do make those, because they're, you know, they may be 19, but they still act like they're 12 half the time. And her main role in her friend's lives at this point. It's kind of to be the go-between. Uh, she's happy to have left her hometown behind because, well, when she's back, she seems stuck in the middle of all the drama. And she winds up being one of the... And, you know, as a result, everybody comes to her. She winds up being one of the few people that Pam Pan feels he can turn to when he starts screwing things up. And what's funny is, I feel that Daniela is one of the more underdeveloped characters, no pun intended if you actually read the book, uh, but I've written... So many other feature things featuring these characters that haven 't seen the light of day that I feel like I know her the best and and I think that she 's the most original um i don 't remember like kind of taking anybody I knew as a template for her. I mean, I might have there might be some characters I saw in movies, and maybe there's some friends I had and what have you, but I just thought of what would be like to have a best friend who's a girl but on the same level of a guy? And um, and that's what I was going for when I created her. Now, we've got three other friends who are supporting characters. Uh, there are two guys, Brian McNamee and Pat Turner. McNamee and Pat, these guys are directly great, based on two friends I had in high school. They're definitely the, well, I don't want to say the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the book because that would give me them and me way too much credit. So they're like Lenny and Squeaky, to be honest with you. I mean, they're there for comic relief and more or less to give people like Jim a hard time and for fart jokes. Uh, but writing static, flat characters can be fun, and this is one of the reasons why. And then, out of the seven, the last one is Jen Flanagan. I know that I use traits of a girl I used to know in this character. I probably should feel bad about that because Jen's basically the town whore. And I know that sounds pretty harsh, but... Well, she's kind of the slutty girl who winds up being more or less a plot device because of this book in a lot of ways is about the relationships that some of these people have with one another. And that does involve sex. Uh, She's not that fully realized of a character, and in hindsight, I feel pretty bad about coming up with someone and having it be, hey, look, it's the slut. If I were rewriting this, I probably would have definitely made her... Okay, I definitely would have made her more, well... Yeah, she's the girl who smokes and curses, and she's quote unquote the bad girl. But I don't know. I just I in the context of the book, it makes sense. But it's it's it bugs me how sexist it feels when I re- read it, and especially to, compared to the other female characters who I feel like I did my best to develop more. I made more three dimensional, you know, because I'm like a real novelist or something. But but really, uh, I, she's one of the characters where I'm like. Yeah, she serves a purpose, but it still feel it doesn't feel. It feels a little wrong, it's, you know, and what have you. There are other characters in the book, but we'll talk about them when we come across them because they're, you know, supporting characters, tertiary characters, what have you. I do want to talk a little bit about the setting. Well, since the book is named after my hometown, there should be some attention paid to it. The majority of the action does take place in Seville, which is a small town on the south shore of Long Island of about 16,000 and counting people. That doesn't sound like a small town, (laughs) but when you consider the rest of the Long Long Island um, and you consider uh, where those people are spread out on Long Island and a lot of these towns that have a lot more than that, um, it's actually a pretty small town in terms of, you know, relatively speaking. And it's also small town geographically uh, there's a main street with diners uh, pizza parlors you've got parks as well as shoreline and beaches there is a sense when you go there that you are in a small community and not everything is just one strip mall or shopping center after another I mean there are those around there because it's Long Island Long Island is that giant strip mall that exists between Brooklyn and the Hamptons Um, and, and don't begin to tell me otherwise I mean I grew up there and I appreciate it for that, for some odd reason that I cannot describe in brief, <laughs> so I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but I, I would think I was trying in some way to make Saville feel like any town, but at the same time make it feel like a character itself. Um, I don't know if I necessarily succeeded at that. I know that at times I was trying to convey the feeling of how these characters were dealing with their relationship with their hometown which is where the inner conflict that Pan Pan has has its, has its roots. Because places like that do come to define you in ways that other, more soulless suburbs might not. And I have nothing against subdivisions, <laughs> but a lot of the burbs have a transient feel to them. You move in, you live there, you move out. You never truly have the place feel like, quote-unquote, home, to be honest. In a town like Seville, or at least how I was trying to paint the town... You do feel a sense of having roots there, even if you've only lived there for a few years. There are people in Sable whose families have been there since the dawn of time. Really, their last names appear in local histories. And there are people like my family who have only been there for, what, nearly 40 years. So it's not a legacy in the sense that you know, they founded the place or there's a street named after them or what have you. But it still feels like home, and that is where we open the book uh, with Jim driving his car down Main Street as he's returning home from being away for college for his freshman year. Like I said earlier, the book is divided into four sections: May, June, July, and August. And this is the beginning of May. Well, time-wise, it's around the middle of May, but that's because when colleges tend to let out, you know, you know what I mean. It's about May fifteenth-ish. Um, I'll start with the cover. Because I'm a comics podcaster, so I I always start with the cover. (laughs) No, Um, I'm starting with the cover. I actually designed the cover because it was a self-published book. uh, And I mocked something up. I sent it to iUniverse, and they put something together that was a real version. And basically, since I was writing about high school, or at least the lingering effects of high school, one person might get that reference, Um, I decided to make the cover look like a high school yearbook. Um, in fact, I actually did made it look like my high school yearbook. I scanned... My, my, I mean, my senior year... High school yearbook's like teal, and there's a couple of gray stripes going down the side. It's called Embracing the Opportunities, and there's this clipart pair of hands holding the world. Or I don't know. I didn't keep that. I scanned the cover so I could get the fake texture of the book down, because it's one of those leather-bound texture covers. Uh, I made the colors purple and gold. There was a purple book with a kind of gold lines going on the left-hand side of the front cover because those are the colors of Stable High School. Uh, and I have the title written, it, the title's written in what's a very like, high school yearbook-looking type of script. It's the only way I can describe it. If you actually go look at the cover, you're like, yeah, that looks very high school yearbooky, y or that, sort of that classic definition of high school yearbooky. Because uh, high school yearbooks have changed a lot. Even since nineteen ninety-five, uh when I graduated high school. Trust me, I know. And I actually put my name a novel and Tom Henry's in the bottom right hand corner, that's where a name stamp would be, and I had to be gold. So so again I was trying to make it look like it like feel like that. And it's it's alright. I don't think it jumps out at anyone. I I think it serves its purpose, and maybe the cover is suited to a bigger tome. And I think that's something that um that's something that I'll talk about later and how there's times when I'm reading this book and i was like, this, for a book with this title, it should have been more. Uh, but I think it suited the theme, in a sense. So, you know, I'll, I'll go with it. Uh, one of the things that bugged me about the printing that iUniverse did was that the covers... First of all, the cover's glossy, and I don't like glossy covers as much as I like matte. That's just a nitpick anal retentive difference. The other thing that happened was um some of the covers that I have uh that I got had purple were purple, but others had this sort of bl- more blue tint to it. So it almost looked like a bluish purple, almost like an indigo as opposed to a violet. Uh and so that was a little bit annoying because I was I was going for something specific there. Or it just Or to me, I don't think anybody who didn't know anything about the colors of the school would have actually noticed. Um, I noticed because to me it looked off. But again, there's a table of contents in the book. I saw no need for it, but for some reason it was part of the package and they would have charged me for taking it out, and uh, that's one of the pitfalls of using a press like iUniverse. Um, there were restrictions, and they would nickel and dime you as far as, you know, what you were paying for, and they knock you up to another pay level, and it just, again, had I been doing this today... There wouldn't. I, I would have been able. I think I would have been able to customize this a little more. Uh, and and it's just the technology and and, and e have taken off in the last few years. They existed in two thousand three, but nobody really bought them because they, you didn't have um, tablets like we have now. Had I, there were a few that were around, I seem to remember like Rocket Books from the late nineties and early two thousands. But that's just me. Uh, and I might be talking out of my ass here, but but the you know the Kindle, the iPad, and what have you, those have really allowed for that platform to take off. And actually, I'm very grateful for it because I, I, I like the idea of an electronic book and and, and whatnot. Now there are times that I, I also like the idea of a paperback. Um, just because paperbacks are, you know, it's a pain in the ass to bring a Kindle to the beach. Uh, and then there are those books that I rather have in paperback because I like to go back and flip through them instead of having to scroll through them and what have you but you know I, I read I just reread the things they carried in uh, ebook that I lo- got out from my library and my library has an e- local ebook lending thing and it's it's stuff like that that I really like about ebooks but anyway <laughs> let's get back to the book um, before we start the book before we start the first chapter there is a there's a dedication uh and then there's a quote and i'll I'll read the quote the quote is surely brenda and eddie would always know how to survive if you don't know the quote and i'm sure several of you do uh it's from the billy joel song scenes from an italian restaurant which you can find is is song four track four on the stranger the album, his his huge, huge breakthrough album, um, huge album that came out in the year I was born, 1977. And this was left over from an earlier draft. I had when I was first writing this put of, thought of putting song quotes at the beginning of every section of the book, and I actually had tons of them line up. It was like all this 90s stuff from, from Green Day to Sarah McLaughlin to Billy Joel, because it's it's Long Island. And as I kept writing, I felt that was a little too much, and I leaned toward, and it leaned toward the cheesy side of things. So I cut them out, except for this one. Um, It's been a favorite song of mine for years. I felt that on some level, what happens in this song is what I was kind of chasing with the book. You wind up not being able to hold on to who you were in high school, no matter how hard you try. And yet, until you realize that, you have this idea in your head that those things were constant in your life, you know. In the case of the line Brenda and Eddie, the popular studies, the king and the queen of the prom, they're always going to be there. And when they're not, when they fail, they they die in a sense, and something goes with it, and it can be unsettling, can even be traumatic. My friend Melissa had a quote. It was high school is a mortal. But even more mortal are those who change and grow with us, or are the friends who change and grow with us, or something to that extent. And and I feel that I was also trying to encapsulate that as well. But we're dealing with this to a degree. The bloom has already gone off the rose, in a sense, when the book opens and with Jim returning home from college. He drives through town, we get a description of what you find on Main Street in Saville, at least what you could find in nineteen ninety-six anyway. He arrives home and starts unpacking with the help of Pan-Pan, who's come by to welcome him home. Jim's sister Valerie, well, not too much of a help because she decides to lay on the couch and watch TV. Pam pan and Jim chit-chat while unloading his car, and while doing so, Jim sneaks some glances at Cindy's house, noticing that there's a Chevy Cavalier parked outside, and that means that Chris, the guy she dumped Jim for, is there with her. Pan-Pan gives a good amount of crap for being so obsessed with her, and they return to unpacking. A few days later, they hang out with Danielle at Sable Pizza. She and Jim trade coll- college stories. Jim's is something about his roommate walking in on him with a girl. Danielle's is about how a guy on her floor was sleeping with his RA so that he wouldn't get reported for smoking pot. Pam doesn't have any stories to fall back on, although he reminds Jim that he and Cindy hooked up at a homecoming party during their junior year which he apparently has been beating to death ever since in terms of a story. And then over the course of the conversation, we learned that Pan Pan flunked out of college. He had been going to the State University of New York in Stony Brook. He was also recently fired from his job as a stock boy at Marshall's, you know, the discount clothing store. Jim has just gotten a summer job as a field worker at Robert Moses State Park, which basically means he'll be cleaning garbage off the beach and doing basic park maintenance all summer. Pan Pan will wind up doing this as well. Danielle, on the other hand, still has her summer job over at the Fire Island Pines. She works in the grocery store over there. Uh, And Cindy, well, she's not there because she's spending most of her time with Chris. Uh, They've been dating since the previous July, and if you can call it that, because, well, frankly, most of it's them and having sex in the aftermath of which is where we first encounter the two of them. He's not exactly the most romantic person either. You know, he chooses to get dressed and leave, even though it's before noon and she's got the day off from her job at a local Italian ice stand. Frustrated that her boyfriend doesn't want to spend any time with her and that she can't stop thinking about Jim, who lives next door and is kind of unavoidable, Cindy calls up Danielle that she decide to hang out, watch movies, and read magazines all day. The guys Jim, Pam Pam, McNamee, and Pat, spend their downtime playing hockey on the high school's tennis courts just about every night, which is about 50% hockey and, well, 50% drinking beers. Mignamia Pat gives Jim a decent amount of shit for still pining for Cindy. And we learn that when Pat had his graduation party the previous year, Jim slept with Jen, the girl in the class who seemed to hook up with just about everybody at one point or another. Except for Pam Pan, because she's just the only one she hasn't gotten around to or something. The guys pack up. We get the chance to see Jim at work manning the umbrella rental counter at Robert Moses. We see him deal with a couple of customers and BS with Pampan, all the while checking out Beth, who's one of his co-workers. Pampan talks about how wasted he's going to get over the weekend, and the coming weekend, well, that happens to be Memorial Day, and that also marks Jim's 19th birthday. That causes him to flash back to the previous year, when the guys went to the beach and McNamee and Pat harassed Danielle. We see the gang at lunch, as Jim does his homework and Pat and McNamee. Act incredibly immature, throwing food across the cafeteria and making crass remarks about Danielle's body. These crass remarks more or less continue when she meets them for late night at the diner during the weekend present day. They had gone to see a band play and were now in the mood to fill up on greasy food because they'd had way too many beers. Cindy meets them there as well, having been on a date with Chris that ended early because the movie was sold out, and they went while well, they went parking. Cindy is in an incredibly reflective mood. She agrees to take the guys off Danielle's hands because Danielle's had enough of their crap, but she drives them as far as the high school and then decides to drive around so she can have some time to herself to think. This is the May section of the book. I figure what i do is a summary of each section. i do a little bit of a critique, pointing out what I've enjoyed on the reread and what I was like, well cringing at to be completely honest with you i mean that's a little self-deprecating but there are times where i definitely wanted to jump in and start rewriting it and this the this way it'll break up a monotony of the recap so beginning with the book uh i was definitely going for a pure setting setup thing that's a lot of s's having jim drive into town and pointing out as many things as i could from the pizza place to the bakery to the comic store Jim and Cindy's houses are located right next to Gillette Park, which is the park where I used to play Little League when I was a kid. It's not too far from my actual house, and I based the description or layout, if you will, of Jim's house on my parents' house, mainly because it was easy for me to do that. I used one of my childhood friends' houses as the basis for Cindy's house, recreating it from memory as best I could. In fact, all of the houses that are described here in the book are based on the houses of friends I had growing up. I think it was just a way for me to make the setting feel familiar. Because I can close my eyes and picture like one friend's house and where the bedroom was and where the living room was and where the kitchen was, and it's just easy for me to do that because it's not that significant to the story, and it's it's a quick out. The south side of Sayville, where Jim and Cindy live, has a definite unique character to it. It's the older part of town. Get toward the north end of town where Danielle, Panpan, Jen, and Pat live, and you get more or less, like, trapped housing from the 70s and 80s. In fact, I think the houses that I based Pan Pan and Jen's houses on had the exact same layout, and they were down the block from one another, or they very, very similar layouts. Anyway, there's a very minor character here in Jim's sister Valerie who spends the entire first chapter laying on the couch watching the Caffeine Pills episode of Saved by the Bell. It's a nod to my sister, who, when she was a teenager, never seemed to get off the couch or anything, for anything and never, ever, ever did chores. Uh, the other stuff is me just trying to have characters do stuff while they have expositional conversation, which I actually thought really worked. The guys unpack, there's a conversation over pizza, the girls heat up microwave popcorn and throw in a movie. I remember making sure that I took extra care to make sure that there was motion as well as speech. Um, for instance, during the entire time that Danielle, Cindy, and the guys are at the diner, McNamee and Pat are throwing sugar packets at one another and burping and farting. And it sounds incredibly ridiculous, but... Um, if you hung out with the guys I hung out with in high school and college back home, it's actually pretty accurate. <sighs> um, I... Okay. I did hold the job at Robert Moses State Park, which is the extreme, it's on the farthest western end of Fire Island, which is off the south shore of Long Island. Uh, I worked at Field Two, which is all the way at the west end of the of the, of the beach. And uh, the position of field worker that I held was a minimum wage position. It consisted of picking garbage, emptying garbage cans, cleaning bathrooms, manning the umbrella rental counter, and then working at the four wheel drive uh, vehicle checkpoint. It was a thankless job at first, but it winds up being one of those jobs that you actually come to really enjoy despite how disgusting it got and how crazy the hours could be. I mean, I worked at the beach all summer. I never had my hours cut. It was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty cool gig if, if you could stand just kind of, you know, the grossness. These beach scenes also have some minor characters, mainly co-workers who serve all of one purpose. Uh, Mike, their boss, is going to wind up butting heads with Pam Pan quite a bit. Beth is going to be a new love interest for Jim over the course of the summer. Uh, Beth's not based on any, anyone, to be honest. I just needed another girl character. There are traits of Mike that are based on an old boss of mine. For instance, he was trying to quit smoking one summer, uh, and what he used to do is walk around with an unlit cigarette in his mouth because he talked about having an oral fixation and he used to talk to it sometimes. It was very odd, but, I don't know, it, it, you got used to it. It was a Rangers fan, too, so I couldn't fault him entirely. Anyway, if there's anything I found cringeworthy while going through this section is two things. First, there are parts of this that come off and will always come off as me trying too hard to be cool in front of people I went to high school with it's actually kind of embarrassing. I mean, I like the fact that I set this novel in my hometown, because the place is the type of place that really lends itself well to a story like this. But it gets so self-referential at points that I wanted to jump in there and take some time to flesh out the characters some more just to prove that they weren't all based on people I knew or things that happened. Because honestly, the events of the book aren't entirely, are entirely fictional even if the characters aren't entirely fictional. I mean, they are, but, you know, they aren't. I mean, I don't know. I read this, and I was like, what am I trying to prove myself here? What am I trying to prove to other people? And, and that's why there's the twinge of embarrassment you know, ten years down the road here. The other thing that's a little cringeworthy, and I don't think I will stop being cringeworthy, is, is the language and the sex. Now, there's a lot of F-bombs in the book. Um, granted, when you're 18, <laughs> 19. Every other word out of my mouth was an F-bomb when I was with my friends. Uh, the mentions of sex, the depictions of sex, they're not pornographic, but they get vulgar from time to time. And in the context of the story, it makes sense, but I did find myself wondering if I should have put certain things in. And and some of the description needs work, you know, so some of the characterization does, especially with Cindy. Um, I came to like Cindy as a character, after writing this, writing other things about her or thinking about her and, and I, she's another one where I'm like, I wish I could have developed her more. But I could nickpick this all day and I'm only a quarter of the way through, so I'll move on to June. The way June is mostly structured is that it's a series of flashbacks to the end of senior year intertwined with the present day goings on of our characters. So each chapter has a framing device of sorts, as a couple of characters have conversations or one character has a moment where he or she starts thinking about what transpired a year earlier. We start out with Pam, Pan and Jim, who are trying to get Jim's car started, and they wind up getting help from Danielle, who has been hanging out at Cindy's house. We have a very awkward moment where Jim and Cindy actually see one another before Jim heads to work. Cindy does the same. Danielle heads to the beach where Jim and Pam Pan work, and it's there where Jim points out Beth, and this reminds her of how she gave Cindy so much crap during the last few days of classes when they were seniors, because Cindy seemed to be in complete denial that Jim liked her, that she liked Jim, and was obviously trying to deflect any pressure with regard to the prom. She then runs into Pam Pan, who is doing a midday garbage pick, and he complains to her about his job and how much crap he gets from his boss, mainly because, well, he's lazy and he's a terrible employee. She just blows him off and she lays down on a beach towel. We then get one of the only chapters of the section without a flashback, and that's Pam Pan by himself trying to figure out what to do with this night, because his friends are either all working or don't feel like going out and drinking again. He decides to take a walk and he heads to where he keeps a stash of beer in a cooler in the woods next to Jen's house. Jen catches him and the two of them have a couple of beers on on her deck. She flirts pretty heavily with him, but he decides not to act on anything he might be feeling for her at the moment because it would be kind of, well, kind of an act of desperation. And pay attention, that'll be important later. The prom and its aftermath. This winds up being the big flashback for the better part of three chapters with the perspectives of all four characters, starting with Danielle. She's trying to get Jim to sell her an old Atari 2600 at his family's yard sale, and when they start talking about his sister's yearbook, she thinks back to the very last days of senior year when she continued to pester Cindy about Jim, as well as how prom night began with Pan Pan and Jim picking up the girls and Jim giving Cindy some flowers. The flashback continues from Pam Pam's perspective as he is and Danielle share late night omelets at the diner and he remembers what happened that night. Jim and Cindy had been having a good time but seemed to be sharing the type of night that most friends would share as opposed to, say, a boyfriend and girlfriend. At one point, Jen danced with Jim and was all over him while Cindy danced with a few other guys. Then the DJ decided that of all the songs he was going to play, the last slow dance of the night was going to be I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. And the two of them dance. It's at this moment that pam and McNamee decide to put money on these two kissing. Pam-Pan believes that they will. McNamee has ten to his five that he won't. Pat, who has brought a video camera to the prom, puts money on no, while Danielle puts money on yes. By the time the song is starting to reach its end, there are several people at the table, all of whom have a bet against pam and Danielle, the total pot being 200 bucks. McNamee and Pampan talk, talk trash for a little bit and then watch with bated breath to see what will happen as Jim and Cindy dance together. Jim and Cindy kiss. Danielle and Pampan go nuts, collecting their cash before joining their friends on the dance floor. We cut to the high school tennis courts the next night where Pam Pan, who is celebrating his birthday, is on his 13th beer, having accepted a challenge of drinking 19 beers on his 19th birthday. Jim's not drinking very much. After all, he's the designated driver. And he actually is pretty amazed that his friend is still able to stand. Even Pat and McNamee are impressed. I mean, he doesn't make it much farther. He was off to throw up those 13 beers while the guys pack up the hockey equipment and the cooler. And on the way home, Paman drunkenly asks Jim about Cindy and Jim says that he's just getting very good at avoiding her. Jim drops his friend off, watching him stumble into the house. And then he heads home, thinking about the same moment we saw in the last chapter, except from his perspective. He had no knowledge of the wager he would find out the next day. All he knew that was that he'd kissed Cindy during that dance and he had a very vivid memory of it. The kiss, as he recalled, was almost, well... He kisses her, she kind of looks at him, and he just says, I had to. And she replies by kissing him again, and then that night they sneak back to her parents' house, and uh, they sleep together. His memories of what is a very tender, even sweet night are interrupted by the writer, (laughs) for the writer, for the reader, sorry, uh, by Cindy's head slamming into the headboard. (laughs) Her being on the receiving end of, well, just on the receiving end of Chris. He acts all gross macho guido guy. He's rather disgusting as well. And he blows her off again. Because she she's like, hey, let's hang out. Since, you know, you're, I'm off. And you don't have to go to work until 4. And he's like, no, no, babe, I gotta go. Uh, she thinks back to her one night with Jim. And then to graduation. And then she wonders, how did she wind up with the guy she's dating now if she had started going out with her... Uh, her her next door neighbor, and then well, and then she decides Chris isn't an worth this, and thinks about this on her way to walking uh, over the fairies to pick up Danielle. Tells her I'm going to break up with him, and uh, Panhand's first line in the next chapter is Danielle's last line of this chap of, of this chapter, which is So what happened to you, free to finally see the light? <laughs> she says it. Cindy says that she mentioned their one-year anniversary to him, and he acted like it didn't matter, and it was basically, well, the last of a long, long list of reasons why she should have broken up with him a while ago. Uh, This is taking place while they're at Applebee's, having dinner for Pan Pan's birthday, and over the course of their conversation, we get how Jim and Cindy's relationship ended almost as quickly as it began. A few nights after graduation, it seems Cindy and Danielle went to Lotus Lake, which Pan Pan mentioned early in the book, and it's a place in the town where kids basically go into the woods and drink. Cindy was drinking the ever-1990s high school girl drink of Zima, flavored with a Jolly Rancher, a watermelon Jolly Rancher. And and maybe there are like three people listening to this podcast who are like, oh, yeah, and then went, oh, yeah. And uh, Danielle, on the other hand, threw down a fifth of JD. Needless to say, Danielle spent the night puking in the woods. Cindy disappeared, and she ran into and hooked up with Chris. She then proceeded to break up with Jim over the phone, and about a week or so later at Pat's graduation party, any hope of them ever getting back together was dashed as Jim slept with Jen Cindy after finding out about Jim and Jen. Well, called Chris had him pick her up, and presumably did the same with him. We end with Danielle contemplating how Jim and Cindy had not spoken to one another since. uh, We're being very stubborn about it, and we never get the true reason why she cheated on him. Uh, But, we will. I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the episode, lo, those many hours ago, <laughs> that I incorporated a story that I wrote when I was 17 in the book. Uh, the prom portion with that bet. It's the story. In some cases, I actually cut and pasted lines of dialogue from the story. In other cases, I smoothed it out a little more. But basically, the story had gone. Uh, that They went to prom. There was romantic tension and pressure from Danielle and Jim and Cindy Dance, pa- Pam and Mac- Mac- McNamee, and it ended with them kissing and kissing again. All their friends celebrated, and well, it's the bulk of the section. And I think I really felt that we needed to see what exactly happened to get these two to not like one another. And I wanted to make it seem, in some way or another, that it was Jim's fault as much as Cindy's fault. Yeah, she cheated on him, and then she broke up with him. But he went out and had like you know the revenge hookup, uh, so to speak. So before they could even have a chance to talk about what had happened because then she went and did the same thing and it was just basically again it's high school it's drama you're nine, 18 years old at this time you know and and you know we all have those those moments where we act like total children in this regard even now i kind of enjoy the way i broke up these chapters uh by having each of them being told from a different character's perspective it's all third-person point of view, of course, but it's a different person each time, so we get a different view of the prom night events from chapter to chapter. The sex... Uh, sex is hard to write. Okay, <laughs> sex is easy to write. Sex is hard to write well. Uh, and here, I'm trying to go for a moment of... tenderness? I was really thinking movie scene. Um, I was thinking... Uh, and I was thinking of sort of that innocent love scene type of thing um, you know, there's like Jim fumbling with Cindy's bra strap and clasp or whatever and uh, and, and whether, we're worrying through his head whether or not this is actually going to be good you know um, trying to make him seem like a very nervous shy 18 year old guy who just does not have experience like this in this way, or is not used to this sort of thing, and now he's with the girl—the girl that he's been that he's been thinking of for, for for what amounts to years. Um, I mean, how can the moment when you finally fulfill four years worth of unrequited love be anything but a letdown? I mean, at least that's what he's worried about. And at the time I wrote it, I thought I was actually being funny by having that one tender scene interrupted by Cindy's head slamming into a headboard. Uh, and not only that, her her not really enjoying what's going on, um, her being ultimately disgusted and break up, breaking up with this guy, uh, because she really was seeing him out of spite to a certain extent. I mean, yeah, I think I think she probably loved him at one point, but really, or liked him at least, but really was, was going out to get back at somebody. And I could have been more subtle here if you read that particular scene, oh, it made me cringe in parts, but I'm not going to get into the details because some of them are actually pretty uh, they're actually good, but at the same time it's just like Ew. there are a couple of things I do need to no prize if you're actually reading it, um, because I didn't notice these mistakes until I was originally writing it when I was originally writing and editing the book. First, at one point, McNamee tells Pan-Pan that if Pan-Pan loses the bet, he owes him $200, which isn't true. The pot is $200. it's about 20 people betting against the two. So, in all honesty, had Jim not kissed Cindy, McNamee would have gotten his money back. Uh, I no-prized it by saying to myself that McNamee's enough of a dick to insult Pan-Pan by telling him that he has to pay him all that money. Uh, The other no-prize is at the end of the chapter where Cindy's with Chris and she decides to break up with him. Uh, She walks to the ferries, and Danielle gets annoyed that the two will have to walk back to Cindy's house. And I read that, and I'm like, wait a second. Doesn't Danielle have a car? Why didn't she just drive them? So I, I, no problem in my head, saying maybe it's in the shop, or somebody needed to use it, or she had stayed over at Cindy's the previous night, and, and Cindy had given her a ride to work, or... Or, or something. Danielle just doesn't have her car that day. It's not a plot hole. It's just it would be one of those odd continuity errors in a movie. Um. As for the drinking and playing hockey, which has shown up already once and showing up now, I actually didn't. I don't think I did this. Uh. I didn't drink in high school. Um and that's why every once in a while i get the feeling of you're trying to make yourself look cool when i'm reading the book cuz i didn't i didn't really have uh, um maybe when i was like started college i didn't drink a lot my freshman year of college it was it was you know eventually i wouldn't become like a, a binge drinking alcoholic or anything but but uh you know i i i was trying um here to write uh what teenagers do in my hometown. Uh, I don't know how cool a character who spends a night ralphing after 13 beers, you know, um, seems to be on a path to screwing up something big and flirts with the loose girl in town is anyway. <laughs> so it's not like I was trying to look make myself look cool. But then again, that's the stupid voice inside my head as I was reading this. Um,. And I regret making Jen such an underdeveloped stereotypical slut. It really the sexism of it really bothers me, and maybe this is just me having a hang-up about this. Um, the scene where she's flirting with him and they're having a drink, I actually like, but I would have developed her more and had her more be more three-dimensional than this is like, this is the easy girl." Uh, or I'd make the tone toward her character less condemning. And I think that's what bugs me about it. Anyway, what we've got here is the point where something will have to happen and we're not exactly sure uh, will. With Pan Pan, we have a feeling that things are not, you know, they're going downhill. But we have to wait to see what happens. With Jim and Cindy, now that we've seen what happened between them, we know A, he's got the odds for Beth. And we know B, that she's done with Chris. So there's four possibilities here. One, Jim falls in love with Beth and Cindy is eventually forgotten. Two: Jim and Cindy get back together and let them live happily ever after. Three: Jim and Cindy reconcile and repair what was once actually a great friendship. Four, Jim and Cindy, having finally gotten over what happened between them as well as the aftermath, decide to wash their hands of one another completely. They don't reconcile. They head back to college, and from that point on, there's no animosity between them, but they're basically kind of acquaintances. You're just somebody that I used to know. Let's see what happens in July. So July begins at Robert Moses, where Pan is taken to sneaking hooch at work, but he doesn't seem to get in trouble, especially since the other employees spend their weekends sitting in the attic of the field house playing cards. Jim and Beth are asked to do what's called the G-Run, which basically means taking a huge card around the parking lot and emptying every single garbage can. This is when he decides to ask Beth to Pat's Fourth of July party, and she says yes. A few days later, Cindy and Danielle are eating at Sparrow in the Smithhaven Mall food court. They're not there because they want to hang out at the mall and eat Sparrow, mind you. They're there because Cindy's going to break up with Chris, because it's where he works. Well, at the mall. He's a security guard. She breaks up with him, and then they go shopping. And it's all prelude anyway, because Pat's party is kind of the centerpiece of July. Uh, or at least the beginning of July, and this takes up two chapters. It winds up being the first time in the book, with the exception of flashbacks, uh, that all four characters are in the same place for longer than a few minutes. It's not a monumental party by any means, not like the one previous year that had been talked about and then detailed a little bit in June. But Pam Pan does get drunk to the point where he almost hooks up with Jen. In fact, they kiss, but he protests going further, and then he passes out on the front lawn, eventually leaving Danielle to take care of him cindy seems to relax a little she completes an epic keg stand then runs to the bathroom to heave (laughs) and jim and beth once they get a moment to themselves at the end of the night kiss a couple of weeks later danielle and pan pan visit cindy at the ice house where she's working the three have a pretty inane conversation about movies but cindy tries to get danielle to talk to him about the excessive drinking Danielle praises Cindy for going to a party at one of her college friends' houses in Westchester because she hooked up with one of her college friends. Danielle doesn't see this as some sort of new romance. She just sees it as progress. Cindy doesn't really know what to think. In fact, she kind of wants to be given some time to think. While she knows she made the right move dumping Chris, she still feels that, well, there's things that are unresolved. Not between her and Chris, mind you, but between her and Jim. So she goes over to Jim's house that evening. Unfortunately, Jim's not home. Jim, in fact, is out on a date with Beth. They go to an Italian place, they make small talk, and he drives her home to her house in Bayshore, where he makes a move. They kiss for a little while, and she breaks it off, telling him that she thinks they might be moving too fast. She doesn't want a relationship, because she got out of a pretty bad one in the spring. Jim, who didn't want to mention Cindy at all... Brings up the whole drama with Cindy because, well, he likes her, but he can't tell Beth, you know, can't tell whether or not he wants a relationship with Beth either. What he doesn't want, though, is just to be friends. So they come to a mutual agreement that they'll see where things go, and in kind of an unspoken agreement that it's probably just going to be them having some fun during the summer, and then they make out. When he gets home that night, he sees a note from his mother that Cindy had stopped by. The next day, Jim and Pan Pan are on their morning beach pick, with Pan Pan taking swings from a flask of rum. They talk about Cindy's coming by as well as Jim date, Jim's date with Beth, and then Pan Pan is picked up by Mike to go work the four-wheel drive checkpoint, which basically means sitting in a chair for the day and checking permits. While at checkpoint, Pan Pan reads a book and drinks from his bottle. He deals with an annoying customer at one point, and at one point, Mitch, the park supervisor, drives up to give him a garbage bag so he can empty out the garbage cans, smelling alcohol in his breath. Mitch asks Pam Pen to give him back his, to give him his backpack. he sees the bottle and he immediately fires him back at the field house. Mike reams him before throwing him out of his office and when Pam Pen tells Jim what happened, Jim loses it as well. The two get into an argument with ends, which ends with Pam Pen storming off to his car and speeding away toward home. You know, when I began writing this, I knew at some point I was going to have something bad to happen to Pam Pan. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was actually going to kill him. I was going to have him commit suicide, I got rid of that, and I was going to have him, you know, um, I was going to have him spiral to the point where he died in a drunk driving accident. And it seemed too dramatic. I mean, this there's something logical about this, In reading it, I wonder if I could have developed things more that it didn't seem to happen so quickly. Uh, It's one of those things that when I go back and look at the novel, I see it's definitely working against me here. I feel that I really know these characters, but I don't know if I really took the time for the audience to get to know the characters. Granted, we've got a good 50 pages or so left in the book at this point, and there are repercussions here, but at times I feel like there's too much... I want to say detachment from the story. Uh, not that I need to go completely in the other direction and be all, 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 all over descriptive and overwrought and dramatic about it, but I feel like there isn't enough in places. Then again, this section is set up. It's set up for August, which is the climactic section of the book. And that's where we're going to get the resolution for Jim and Cindy. We're going to get the uh, the aftermath of this sort of Pam uh, Pam's firing. I knew that there had to be a few things out of the way by the end of this section, July though, if um, if I was going to really do what I wanted with August and Cindy's boyfriend was one of them. I figured he was probably cheating on her <laughs> or at least he had someone else lined up so that the breakup could be pretty clean and he wouldn't really care about it. Um, after she does it, Cindy anyway... She thinks a lot about how much time she wasted over the past year with the guy. And uh, she also thinks about how she lost a friendship. And that's why she heads over to see Jim. Um, and, of course, he's on a date <laughs> and making out with Beth uh, and then going home. And the note reminds him the, to the note. And it was my way of... It was a, it was a not a reference, but like... I just I'm reminded of the scene at the end of Swingers where Mike finally gets over his ex uh because he you know he has that great night dancing with Heather Graham and Heather Graham uh you know, gives her his number and what have you. And um the ex calls while he's on the phone with uh with with Heather Graham, and then he's just like you know, he turns around and he's he ends up talking to Heather Graham, but but it's it's that it's like the the timing you, you you hear from the old girlfriend the moment you've forgotten about her or the moment she's starting to 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 fade from 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 memory and it's almost like a, it's like they've got psychic powers or something I mean this actually happened to me uh, I had started dating my wife uh, we were going out for God it must have been like three weeks. And uh, it was not even. It might have been just the middle of November. It was. It was. Yeah. It wasn't even three weeks. It was. It was like a week and a half, two weeks. And I'm in my dorm room one night, and I get this phone call, and it's my ex girlfriend who I hadn't talked to since like fall break or something. It was just like like the middle of October, and 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 you know whatever. And I remember picking up the phone and hearing her voice, and and it just got. It was a there was like this pit in my stomach moment because she was the last person on my mind. And, and there's too much, from what I remember, there was too much, like, nuttiness going on during our whole very prolonged breakup and this sort of let's try to be friends that we broke up type of thing. And I remember that phone call and the fact that i was really into this girl that i was dating and i would eventually marry led for me calling the ex-girlfriend up and basically saying i can't talk to you anymore like or i don't want to talk to you anymore basically cutting the cord please don't call me anymore or whatever or something like that um so jim and beth and City, it was just kind of like that but not as not as not as dramatic not as extreme because I kind of want to see them have a conversation at some point in the book. On to the party. Um, I probably could have done the events of the party in different settings uh, because they didn't need to happen in the same place. But I liked having the characters all in one place. And plus, this is one of the few times in the book where I was clearly writing for a couple of friends of mine. Uh, My friend Tom... For a few years, through these awesome Fourth of July parties, uh, and I wanted it represented. Uh, there's something about, you know, just there's something about those where it was just like you. I looked forward to. I remember looking forward to like every year. Uh, and there's, you know, there's also something about being in the same place as the person you're trying to avoid. Specifically, having to be in the same place for a long time. Um, it's awkward at first, but you find ways to make it comfortable. Uh, that and I got to advance three of the characters pretty quickly. Cindy and Danielle spend the party talking about boys and Cindy's wanting to move on from the last boy she was with. Uh, we have Pam Pan actually kissing Jen, but when it starts to go further, you know he breaks it off. And then we have Jim and Beth's first kiss, and all in one scene, uh, It's not the party and say anything, even though things kind of are going on at the same time, but you know, there's no Joe lies when he cries. But I thought I'd give it a shot, and, uh, and I think it, it, it turned out halfway decently. Um, trying to kind of get a lot of things going at once, uh, and then you know then we move on to the kind of aftermath and the and the development and and, and what 's the setup for august and this is where we are it 's the last part of the book. August begins at the pool hall. Jim and Beth are hanging out with Danielle, who notes how comfortable the two of them seem together, and how easy Beth is to get along with. Over the course of the evening, Pan-Pan's mentioned. And Jim and Beth reveal to Danielle that he got fired. Uh, they thought he knew. Danielle hadn't even been told, uh, even though it was old news by this point. She does her best not to lose it. She tries to enjoy the rest of the evening with the couple, but after the three of them go their separate ways, she heads right over to Panpan's house to talk to him. He's dismissive to the point in telling her that she's being a bitch, and she loses it. She lays into him and she leaves. Jim and Beth head back to Beth's house and with her parents away for the weekend, they sleep together. He has a thought about how this must mean that he's over Cindy. (laughs) And as he gets ready to leave and go home uh, so that he won't break curfew, the two of them more or less break up. Well, they don't break up per se. They just decide that when Beth leaves to go back to college at Geneseo in a week, they're not going to date long distance. It's going to be over. He heads for home. He feels oddly satisfied about that, mainly because he'll go back to school unattached. But there's this lingering feeling that something is unfinished. A few days later, it's time for the save Summerfest, summer Fest, which is a huge fair held every week during the first weekend of August. All four of the main characters wind up going, with Danielle and Cindy going together and having a conversation about leaving for school, which we will, they will both do within the next few weeks. Their conversation is interrupted when they spot Jim, who is hanging out by the soda booth and bugging his sister as well as Danielle's sister, Kristen, both of whom working Summerfest. Danielle tells Jim to join her and Cindy, and he does, although things are a little bit awkward. They walk among the fairgrounds and Jim shows off his mad skills by winning an oversized Scooby-Doo at one of the Kearney games. They repeatedly run into random people from high school and Jim eventually asks Danielle if she can scram so that he can talk to Cindy. She does, and almost immediately runs into Pam Pan, whom she was looking for anyway, but when she smells the alcohol on his breath, she just turns around and walks away. Jim and Cindy walk from the fair down to the beach, and they eventually begin talking about what happened between them. It gets very heated very quickly, with Jim sniping at Cindy about how she cheated on him with Chris, Cindy yelling back at how he went and had sex with Jen at Pat's party. She gets ready to walk away, and he manages to get her to come back and talk to him. Both a little calmer, they turn the attention away from their mistaken liaisons and toward each other. Cindy tells him that she was very happy after prom night, but got really overwhelmed at the thought of an actual relationship with him especially considering how he felt about her and what she knew about how he felt about her and she got scared and she cheated on him Jim then notes that he screwed up any chance of possible reconciliation because of what he did and they admit that they missed one another Pan-Pan, on the other hand, (laughs) he's on the other side of town having sex with Jen in the back of her Ford Taurus station wagon. Uh, They'd run into each other at the fair, they'd talk for a little bit, one thing led to another, and, well, after they're done, he immediately regrets it. Um, And you can tell because of the way he's looking around for his clothes while she's continuing to flirt with him. Once he finds his clothes, (laughs) or his shoes, or whatever he's looking for, he, he... Immediately gets out of the car and he leaves. He's just walking up the block away from uh, away from the docks down by West Sa- the other West Sable. She just flying by <laughs> on her way home, and he begins what's essentially going to be a few mile walk uh, from the docks at the end of Atlantic Avenue West Sable to his house, which is all the way on the other side of town. Uh, he reaches the diner, which is not even the midpoint, but it's. It's in town, and instead of, keeping, instead of continuing to walk, he calls Danielle, who is home at this point. She's reluctant to come and get him, uh, but eventually she relents. She shows up at the diner, and they sit down and they have a cup of coffee. About a week later, at Sal's Pizza, Danielle tells Jim and Cindy about the conversation she had with their friend, and about how Pam was obviously compensating for feeling abandoned by being self-destructive. She then talks to her friends about college, wishing them both good luck, and then she heads home to pack up herself. We end the novel with Jim packing up his car to leave to return to school. As he's finishing up, Cindy heads over to his house to say goodbye, and she gives him a present. It's a picture of the two of them from graduation. Pam Hinch up briefly as he's on his way to his new job at Dairy Barn, and he wants to say goodbye. We also find out that he's enrolled at community college. Jim tells him he'll see him at Thanksgiving, and Pam heads off. Cindy says goodbye to Jim, and he gets into his car, and he drives out of town. When I was rereading this, uh, I remember thinking about how convenient it was that I had a real-life event to bring the characters together again. (laughs) Sable actually has a fair every year called the Summerfest. uh, Years and years and years ago, Uh, it was called the Oysterfest. Because for many, many years, uh, Sable and the surrounding towns, uh, Bayport, Blue Point especially, were a huge part of the oyster industry on the South Shore of Long Island. I think this was about until, oh, like the 30s? Or it it started to go downhill in the 30s um, because of, uh, in part thanks to a hurricane that hit uh, back then and really just ravaged the population, of the oyster population. Uh, but the Blue Point Easter Company was in was headquartered in in Sable the Sable area for for a number of years uh, before and after that. Uh, they changed the name to the Summerfest when I was in, in elementary school at some point. Uh, I really don't know remember why. Um, and. I was in elementary school like 30 years ago, so for all I know, they've been doing this fair for like 50 years at this point. I don't remember when they started. In fact, I'd have to, I could probably ask, there's a there's a great, great Facebook group that was started by a friend of mine, named Carrie, a girl I went to high school with, called You Know You're From Sable If, and it, with, it almost would like I guess, as far as facebook 's it 's not like it went viral, but it 's got an enormous number of people in it now, and it was just started as this sort of like this is kind of fun, and people post stuff all the time and reminisce and it 's a great great group, but I could probably post something in in the thing and I maybe I will uh, does anybody remember when the first oyster fest was? Uh, because it's it's a, it's a tradition, and it's a huge tradition. It's something that people look forward to, I'd say, about every year. And you did as a kid. I did as a kid because it, was, it took place in the park where I used to play Little League, which was um, near the comic store and on the south side of Main Street. So it was about um, a couple of blocks away. Uh, I could ride up there on my bike. I could walk up there. I mean, that's how close it was. Uh, And and the two characters, these characters, going there, even though they're 19, uh, makes sense because we would go when we were in high school. Um, uh, In fact, I have the two sisters manning the soda booth because we used to do that as part of a community service club, for credit, in the community service club. Uh, But the idea of these characters and these going there makes sense because two of them actually live next door to the park. So it's not far-fetched and they would run into each other. So it's just kind of like a Um, I try to make it kind of, you know, natural. Like, you know, that Danielle and Cindy are going to go because they're going to have fun. Jim's going to be there because he just goes every year and Pan Pan's going to be there probably because he's looking for Danielle. And Jen's just Jen. I like the conversation. You're getting on to where these characters go on with each other. I like the conversation that I wrote between Jim and Cindy. It has moments of drama, but I remember trying my best to make it seem like a natural conversation. I also remember that I liked how I had them swatting at the occasional mosquito when they talked to one another. <laughs> um, kind of like you know they were swatted because because they weren't eaten alive. If you know anything about the the East Coast, more or less during the summer, it's humid and it's buggy, so it was kind of like again motion walking and talking, motioned and and things going on as you're talking to somebody. Uh, a couple of my friends actually read this and they were wondering if they did get back together. Or they were disappointed that they ha- they did, but they didn't get back together as friends. Because I, I deliberately made them be friends again instead of getting back together because I felt that's how the story was supposed to end. They weren't destined to fall in love and get married. Maybe if this was... 90210 or Dawson's Creek or something but you don't very often have the reunion where you run into each other's arms and you say oh I've missed you so I love you I'm sorry come back to me my dear and at best your relationship with a person involves to the point where you're friends again and, and you're, you're friends in a way that's more adult or more mature than you were when you were kids. And that's kind of the thing with them. my friend Melissa was, I, I quoted her, butchered a quote, but something about how she said her friends have kind of changed and grown from high school. Uh, and, and there are a few I have that I, that I don't keep in touch with as much as I should. But... Um, when we get together, or when I talk to them, it, you can. It, we're adults now, and it, it, I always appreciate the fact that we have that sort of relationship. where you know, we don't have to be kids anymore. And that's what i was trying to get Jim and Cindy on the road to. Um, Jim's wife, Cindy's husband, are never going to be jealous of this person because it's not there anymore. And I felt that's how the story should end between them. Now, the other question I get from time to time <laughs> is about Danielle and Panpan. Were they in love with each other? And if so, do they ever get together? I mean, like, my fr- I seriously had people, a couple of friends of mine who read this, and they were shipping them. <laughs> and the answer is... sort of? I think you walk away from this book realizing that he's definitely got feelings for her that go beyond their friendship, but maybe she... Doesn't? I'll talk about it in a bit. But overall, looking at the ending, there are parts that I found strong and parts that I really did find weak. I still feel a little guilty for making Pam Hans bottoming out having sex with the easy girl, because as appropriately mature as the character's lines of thinking is, it's very sexist but the fact that he has that what the hell am i doing moment by the end goes to the one person he knows that will listen to him even if she's absolutely pissed off at him is necessary it's the biggest problem i have with the book though aside from the description i give for things which is really cringeworthy at times anyway i feel like while i wouldn't have lengthened the time frame at all I really could have stood to develop some of the characters a little more or maybe slowed things down a little bit. Uh, There are times when this feels like it's flying by and I know summers fly by, trust me. But there are scenes that needed to be longer and the ending when it comes to Pampani and Danielle is one example of that. Most of the conversation we have with them winds up being told secondhand in the pizza place about a week later instead of me actually showing it. And that bugs me. In fact, it bugged me to the point where, incidentally, I actually did turn this into a screenplay. Not one that I ever intended to actually be produced. Um, I think I I did it as a writing exercise, because I'd never written a screenplay before, and wanted to do kind of the technique of it, or, or see how you would put one together. And since I had this book... I was like, well, yeah, let me write it out and see what it would be like and see how you would structure and then kind of play with it. Um, And in writing that, I actually rewrote this scene to have a conversation between the two of them actually take place. And it winded up playing out a lot better than in the original book because I had them sit down at the diner over coffee, maybe a little bit of food, and just have it out. Kind of the same way Jim and Cindy were across town doing the same thing on a park bench. Um... So so at least I got my one chance for one revision. There you go. Now, overall, the book, uh, did I like it? Is the, or is this something I'm embarrassed by? Well, I've been talking about this for almost two hours now. I don't think I'm that embarrassed. Um, or I'm not sure that I'm embarrassed. I'm not going to try to pump you for money or anything. Like I said, I get about ten cents per book big deal, but I think it was a it was a good shot. you know I always feel that I had to write this though. I was sitting in my head for about a decade before I put it out. you know, so there are some stories that you just feel that you need to tell, and I feel that maybe this was one of them. As for how successful this was, um I didn't do much promotion mainly because I didn't have the money. Uh, but what was cool was that I did actually get to hold the book signing in my in a bookstore in my hometown. And I got it interview for the local paper. Uh, the bookstore was called Runaway Bay Books. It's no longer there, sadly. I think it's been replaced by yet another gift shop. Uh, I remember I signed a few copies for friends and family, random people. I read part of the book. I think the prom part, because uh, I had the least amount of cursing. And I basically hung out for a few hours on a Saturday. Uh, the article about it ran in the Suffolk County News, which is a small local weekly paper that I used to write for back when I was in college. Uh, I gave an interview over the phone when I was actually in New York City on business in late June of 2003. I talked about what influenced me to write. I remember that a big part of the article was about how I had taken the book all the way from a short story in my creative writing class. That was pretty fun. Uh, Kind of how it's fun when one of my friends or someone from my hometown mentions the book to me on Facebook, even if there are times when I kind of want to go back and change a few things in it. Because I'm like, yeah, it's not as good as... For instance, (laughs) I'd actually change the title if I had my way. Uh, Not that Sable isn't a good title, uh, but at the end of the book, at the end of the book, there's a reference to the song Anywhere's Better Than Here by The Replacements. And part of me thinks that that actually might be a better title. I'd then change Pan Pan's name because it, it, as in-jokey as it is uh, to name the most dipshit character in the book after myself, it doesn't work in the long run. I mean, having his first name be Jeff, so i just probably call him that, uh, it just, I, it, it got irritating to me, and that was a little bit more embarrassing to me. as was like, uh anyway aside from developing some of the characters and giving a little book a little bit more heft i think i'd tone down the sex a little bit even if and if i'm gonna set it in 1996 i'd make it feel more like a period piece in fact i i remember i was thinking a lot about american graffiti when i was writing this and truly The 90s are a decade rife for an American Graffiti slash Dazed and Confused type of movie or book or whatever. Yeah, so those are the changes I'd make um, and kind of my overall opinion on it. I'm going to take another break, uh, one last break, and I'm going to come back with some, well, ancillary stuff. I've written more about these characters than just this book, so I'm going to talk about that. Joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided by some Bat fans. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years, and that's why I've decided to give him his due in taking flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder. and every episode, I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader. As well as in solo adventures, whether it be as Robin, Nightwing, Red Robin, or the Red Hood. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net, and you can find additional show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. So join me, Tom Pannerese, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. <laughs> on your ass Wild be flowers in a vents. I ask how are you? Yeah, how are you? I feel anything on your glass. I feel drunk used up too well. I mentioned before when I went to break that there's more to these characters than just this novel. I thought I'd shed some light on all of that, because I don't know, I'm thorough or something. First, I actually created a soundtrack for the book. Uh, granted, it's just a mix of songs that are mentioned in the book, in addition to stuff uh, that I was listening to while I was writing it. But, I'll just give you the list of songs. Uh, Graduation by Wasted Time, Hey Jealousy by the Gin Blossoms, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant by Billy Joel, December 1963, Oh, What a Night by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Forever Young by Alphaville. I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. Jack and Diane by John Mellencamp. Uh, The specific version on my playlist is a live version that was the B-side to the Dance Naked single, which I actually own for some reason. Don't remember why, but I own it. Laid by James. Spiderwebs by No Doubt. Wasting My Hate by Metallica. Total Eclipse of the Heart by Nikki French, which was the dance pop version of the song that she covered. Uh, it was a minor hit in the early 90s. Molly by Sponge, which you just heard coming in from the break. Heathcliff by Wasted Time. God by Tori Amos. Anything... Sorry. Nothing Else Matters by Metallica. Last Goodbye by Jeff Buckley. And Anywhere's Better Than Here. By the replacements it's a mix of uh music that i thought was appropriate music that was definitely of the time of the novel was set but also stuff that i thought conveyed the book's theme even though that sounds incredibly pretentious but yeah i made a mixtape shocking at least if you know me (laughs) now as for actually writing about these characters uh because I've written more than just the book. I did start writing short stories that were about their time in high school and was kind of posting them to a website for a while. You can't find them anymore. I took them out years ago, and that's mainly because they weren't, well, they weren't great. I was rushing to get them out on a regular basis. But the idea of it all was a sound one. I was going to do a series of short stories that showed these characters from beginning of their freshman year to the end of their senior year, folding the novel in as well, because, you know, continuity, yo. I wrote about half of them. And about half of those were even worth it. So, you know, it's almost like the novel's the movie, and, this, the, and that was the spinoff TV show, or if we're putting it in comic terms, that's the big graphic novel that starts it all, and then, or the miniseries that starts it all, and then this is the ongoing. Um, Things about those stories. I remember I made Jen into more of a character. I actually gave Danielle way much more of a backstory than she had in the novel. There was another character named Lisa who was another friend of theirs who was going to be gone by senior year, probably just have her move away or something. She actually wound up being a good character. I regretted not having her in the novel because at one point in the story, she actually goes out with Jim for a while and uh, having her in the book might have created a bit of tension between him and Cindy. Well, more than there already was. (laughs) uh two big things from that crop of stories aside from a new character to tell stories about were that during freshman year danielle became increasingly popular while cindy became increasingly withdrawn when they returned to school sophomore year danielle had become basically that suddenly hot and popular girl you know the one girl you barely noticed one year but the next she walks into school the first day it's like whoa And Cindy had done a complete Angela Chase. Um, I actually like a lot of the stories I wrote about the characters during that second year, sophomore year, because I remember getting to the point where I was kind of satirizing the teen genre, uh, the movie and television genre, to the point where it actually ended with a story that I wrote as a script, because because it's just, again, I was playing around with writing script and things like that, just having a little fun, called Trapped in a John Hughes Movie, where a couple of the characters wind up playing out just, in life, scenarios from a couple of John Hughes movies, uh, because I love John Hughes movies, because I always felt that I was writing, in this book, what happens after the happy ending of the John Hughes movie. Uh, so it was kind of fun to, to poke a little fun at that and to kind of satirize that that culture that or that perceived teenage culture, which was kind of my view of it when I was younger. Like, I was, like, this was how I would have thought teenagers would go. So let's have a little fun with that. Uh, I, and I, but I, like I said, I, I wrote them up all the way up until the end of sophomore year. I think I might have written like one or two at the beginning of junior year, and then I stopped. And then I went and plotted uh, after that. I really didn 't write anything else in full, but I did go and plot out everything else, mainly because I wanted to sketch out the stories in case I ever really did decide to do something with them, maybe write something comprehensive, another book or whatever i haven 't um, but I, I I do remember sketching out some that were uh, that were all right the junior ones just weren 't really going the way I wanted it to, and some of the senior ones was like I could tell that I was trying to stretch for material. Uh, but I do remember I, it was one point I went back to the idea of satire and I did a Apocalypse Now parody centered around SATs. Um, I remember that I did the whole thing about them and college decisions and, of course, the build to the prom and what have you. Um, and I wrote the last, I did write one more story. I wrote the very last of what was going to be those stories, the, the end of senior year for these characters. I called it Never This Way Again. And what I did, so it was the quote unquote final episode of the TV series, if you want to call it that, or the final issue of the comic or whatever it is. And I retold the prom scene from the book. But I did the, the whole focus of the book was Danielle, the story was Danielle and Pan Pan instead of Jim and Cindy. So we saw those two and the rest of the gang on prom night as opposed to our friends from the book. And it actually answered the question that a few of my friends had about whether or not those two were in love with each other. Because in that on prom night at their friend Pat's, um, I had a moment where the two of them kissed, but she stopped it and kind of ran away. And he went and talked to her about it like the very next day. He didn't wait a year or so, and in the course of that conversation, he told her he loved her, and she said, "I know." So she Han Soloed him, basically. And uh, had this been part of the larger story of the book, it would have explained her overall coolness toward her friend, uh, probably even given them a little more depth. You know. Uh, so again, I almost corrected some of my mistakes. Uh, but I never was able to put them into the book. Um, And I think I want to say that bits and pieces of this Never This Way Again was, uh, especially the part where she has a conversation with him, was me drawing inspiration from one of my favorite Vonnegut stories called Long Walk to Forever. So, uh, again, uh, it's not necessarily good, but my story, not Vonnegut's mine, but that's what it was, at least for them in high school. Now, I had those stories. I had what would have been kind of four quote unquote years worth of stories, short stories in high school. I had the sort of end of high school, beginning of college, 19 years old novel. Beyond that, though, there's actually two other books, uh, neither of which are published. One of them will never see the light of day. And that's because when I went to revise it, I scrapped it. It was just, it was called College Ruled. Uh, something like an unauthorized but completely necessary guide to college life. And it was my attempt to write a novel about Danielle's experience through four years of college. I made her one of a pretty large cast of characters and told the story over the course of four years that was narrated by a character named Brian Henderson. But instead of being structured as a flat-out novel, I structured it as this sort of satire parody of a guide to college life. So each of the chapters was actually a topic, and he told the story of his four years of college in the context of giving the audience tips on how to survive college life. And... Ugh... The first draft was way too much of me writing stupid crap about my friends. And then the second draft was a little better, but the narrator's voice came off way too much like a bad episode of Saved by the Bell, The College Years. And yes, I realize there's not actually a good episode of Saved by the Bell, The College Years, but in all honesty, I'm trying to be, well, just honest about how bad the narration was. And I started a third draft, and this was about maybe 2004, 2005, and I got about halfway through it and realized that, I just had to give it up. I mean, there were too many characters to deal with. The time frame of all four years was too much. The structure wasn't holding up very well. I mean, there was some good stuff in there. There were a few good characters. There were a few good moments, but it wasn't worth saving. Uh, I still think it was worth the experience, though, because it taught me that sometimes you just write things and abandon them, and... Yeah, you kind of failed at it, but it's all right. You know, you... Again, sometimes we have stories that we have to tell and we only tell them to ourselves. Uh, Maybe one day I'll take a look at it and I'll see if there's anything salvageable in there. But from what I can tell, there wasn't enough to make that much of an effort. I had more success writing the other one, uh, which is called For the Rest of Your Life, uh, the first draft of which I actually wrote years ago, November 2001, for National Novel Writing Month. This is where you write 50,000 words of a novel in... in, uh, in 30 days, and I've done it twice. The first "Rest of Your Life" was one of them, and then in 2010, I wrote the first 200 pages of a novel called "Standards of Learning," which I'm still working on, or haven't actually picked up in in a couple of years because I've been too busy. But uh, that was that was fun. Maybe maybe I'll actually finish that at some point. Anyway, um, I wrote the first draft in 01, and I've rewritten it three times in the last 12 years. And I know I wasn't no I wasn't writing rewriting it for 12 years. Uh, you know, life gets in the way of things like this. So I put it away, and then I take it out. and I think it's actually a good thing, because uh, the novel, for the rest of your life, is a PCSD piece. Uh, this time it has four main characters, one of whom is Danielle from this book, and another one who is her cousin, and, it's, and the book's about your 20s. Uh, two of the main characters have crap jobs one of the characters has her dream job but it pays nothing one of them is dealing with all her friends getting married but her and it's the sort of particle board furniture slash annoying roommates slash moving every year crap that you put up with after college you know and, and along with hitting that point in your like mid-twenties when you get a seriously low tolerance for everyone else's bullshit um, you know because in to a certain extent, in your early 20s, you are a little bit insufferable. And then you hit that point about like 25, 26, 27 that you're just like, you just, I don't know, your priorities shift or whatever, and you're just like, I, I don't have the time for this shit anymore. And and, uh, and and that's what kind of the central crux of the book is. And it's about relationships as well. And, and adult relationships rather than teenage relationships. We do get a uh, where-are-they-now moment, though, for the characters in Sable, uh, somewhere in the middle of the book. And I intend to do something with that in a year or two. Uh, I just put the finishing touches on another draft. (laughs) So, I'm either going to send this somewhere, or I'm going to self-publish it, or I I don't know. I'm sure that if I do something with it, I'll post about it here somewhere. Maybe I'll actually promote it way more than I did Sable when I posted that uh, ten years ago. But, that, at long last, <laughs> is the end of this episode. That is Savil, my novel of sorts. Uh, this was a task to put together. Um, it's been my longest episode to date. I'm about the 2.10 mark and I think by the time I do trailers and music, uh, music stuff, it's probably going to hit 2.15, 2.20, maybe even two and a half hours. If you stuck it out with me, if you didn't turn this off about an hour and a half ago. Thank you. Uh, If you have any questions about it, if you're interested in any of the stuff I talked about, uh, contact me. Contact me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or comment uh, on the post that I'm going to put up with the blog or leave a comment on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Uh, Next time, I promise, it won't be quite as long. Uh, I am... 99.9% sure I am going to be talking about Cameron Crowe's singles next episode. Uh, And if I don't, well, I'm sorry. But until then, check out the blog for show notes and other musings. I've gotten back into writing about uh, Teen Titans comics. I've written a couple other things here and there. Don't forget to check out my other two podcasts, Taking Flight, which you can find over the Batman universe. And in country, my brand new podcast where I'm going to be covering Marvel Comics series The Nom, and the first episode of that is up, uh, and and should be uh, downloadable through iTunes any day now as of this recording. So that is about it. Until next time, um, thank you once again for listening, and and have a good one. Mm-hmm. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit. A blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.